Well, brethren, God is really intervening in world affairs, and I don't want to keep repeating that. It could sound boring, but I really mean it. I'm telling my wife every now and then I'm excited by it, grateful, watching all those years and writing letters many times, especially beside the one I wrote saying we would have more time and giving five reasons back before 72. But now we have Putin who is describing uh, himself maybe is going out in November because his term is up, but some uh, Russian expert who lives here was saying, well, don't necessarily trust in that. He has a way of maneuvering and declaring an emergency. He may not be out in November. And he, of course, is a dictator, and Russia has far more atomic and hydrogen bombs than any other nation on Earth beside the United States. And he's becoming very, very Hitlerian if you watch him. So we see that moving forward. We see China getting the largest army on the face of the Earth and getting more atomic and hydrogen weapons and missiles and all kinds of delivery systems and submarines and so on, far beyond any defensive need they have. And we see Iran moving right ahead to get their atomic bomb. And the uh, Jerusalem Post and other sources in the Middle East are saying that the United States and, Iran and Israel may cooperate yet this summer and launching an attack a preemptive attack to blast out their nuclear systems before they progress too far. That could happen even yet this summer, in the next few weeks. We don't know that. I'm just saying that's the story that may be happening, as reported in a number of sources from the Middle East. And, of course, we have America continuing to go down in Iraq. We have our dollar continuing to go down. The dollar hit an all-time low against the euro just a couple of days ago. And we have 400 fires, the newspaper, the radio was saying, raging throughout the United States and record drought in the southwest and much of the southeast and just a whole bunch of things. You're just a few of the things that are happening. Yes, the things we've talked about and the things I've talked about personally for over 54 years in the ministry are all coming together in a panorama of prophecy that is exciting. And brethren, we really don't have that much more time. I'm not trying to frighten you because it's not going to be next year, the year after. Some of you know these self-proclaimed prophets who say, get ready to flee this spring. Well, I'm not saying that. It's going to be a few more years because there are several things yet to happen. But it's not going to be, you know, 30 or 50 years at all. And I personally think it's going to be a lot sooner than that, as most of you know. These things are coming together. And we need to really know what's going on and where Christ is working and what we all need to do about it. We in this work are being used. We're not great. We're very small. And none of us are perfect in any way, whatever. But we're being used by God because of the training we've had, many of us in the ministry, Mr. Apartheid and Mr. Ames and I, trained directly by Mr. Armstrong and worked with him for decades. And others in the work have been trained and used by year, for years by Christ. And we're being used by Christ to warn Israel to give a positive, not just attacking others and kicking people out of the church if they don't agree with this. As you know, that kind of thing is going on in one of these groups. And some of the people are here, as a matter of fact, who have been kicked out. And all across the country we're hearing about it. We're not doing that kind of thing, proclaiming ourselves apostles and prophets and so on. But we are doing the work of warning Israel and our people in a positive way with increasing power and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and talking about preparing kings and priests and teaching the government of God because that's the very thing we're being prepared for. And we're doing that in an increasingly powerful way. And I think most of you know that. But do you really trust God and Christ to lead His church 
and those who are doing the work. Brethren, as we approach the very end, that does become more important. It really does to think through and to understand. It's not a matter of me. I may not be the one to finish the work. And I've told you that and I mean that. My wife knows I mean that. I'd say that to her and she says, well, you know, quit talking about dying. I don't need to hear more about that sometimes. I'm not talking about that. But I do not, not plan on necessarily living forever in the flesh. And I know I could be taken. And I know some younger, more capable man could carry on. That's up to God. And God's in charge and Christ is in charge. I believe that. But I don't believe that perfectly. And I don't claim to. I don't think any of us believe it perfectly. But we do need to really learn to trust in God and in Christ. God tells us back in Romans, if you turn there with me, turn with me, brethren, to Romans 14. I'm going to try to find the T under here. Oh, here it is on the left. I'm going to put it up here and hope I don't knock it over (laughs) up in front. In Romans 14 and verse 21, the Apostle Paul was inspired to write, It is good neither to eat meat or drink wine, nor do anything to which your brother stumbles, to, uh, by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Do you have faith? Do you have faith in your own heart and mind that, that you can, for instance, drink wine and it's all right? Because Christ drank wine and his first miracle was turning water into wine. And the Greek word did not mean grape juice. It meant it's oinos. It means real wine. And Paul told Timothy to take a little bit of wine for your stomach's sake. Not a bottle, but a little bit of wine, a glass or two for your stomach's sake. And you're off in infirmities. Do you have faith you can do that? Or eat meat? Some vegetarians are afraid to eat meat. Have it or exercise it to yourself before God. If you're off in India and we're in the middle of a campaign and you're converting people just coming out of Hinduism, you might not want to eat meat in front of those people for a while. You may want to have consideration for their weakness, not your weakness, but their weakness till they can understand. Not that what you're doing is wrong, but not to offend them unnecessarily. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned. He's condemned if he eats, if you doubt because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. And brethren, there are several different definitions of sin in the Bible. The main one, of course, we know is in 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. But here's a secondary, the major secondary definition of sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. As I said in a previous sermon, if you sin and you know you're sinning, you will tend to doubt God, and you will tend not to have faith. Sin brings guilt, and a feeling of guilt is a great destroyer of faith in God. You've got to do what you know you ought to do, or you cannot have faith, and your prayers are not going to be answered in the same way, and so on. Here's a very important scripture. Whatever is not from faith is sin. And that's a very important principle. Faithlessness leads to sin. Because if you get in the habit of knowing something and you realize it's right and you water it down and you change it and you go over here and you go over there, you are sinning. You're showing God that you don't have that fear of God, that awe of God to really do what he says once you know what he has said. So we need to think about that. In Luke 4 and verse 4, Jesus Christ said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now, that was a command. 
And so if we know what the Bible says anywhere in the Bible, and we know the New Testament magnifies the old, we understand that. But we'd better do what the Bible says, or we will tend to have doubt, and we will tend to have frustration, and we will tend to be weakening the very fabric of our character. We will be tearing down our own integrity in that sense. So you've got to learn to live by what God says in every phase of your life. In every phase, every area of your life, do what God says in faith. In 1 John, I'm sorry, just in the Gospel of John, let's go there first of all, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John, chapter 14, one of my favorite chapters, and I like to expound the whole thing, of course, but we don't have time for that here in this context. Verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, well, I'm sorry, let's go back to verse 21, start in verse 21. He said here, He who has my commandments, plural, and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So you love Christ, you love God by doing what they say. You're indicating to them, we know you're there. We know you're right. We know you're good. We know you're true. We know you're wonderful, which we should know. So we will do what you said or what you say and not argue about it, not water it down. That's the way you show love to your creator. And Judas asked, how will you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word Jesus said, live by every word of God. And my Father will love him, and we, God, the Father, and the Son, Jesus said, I and the Father are one, we will come to him and make our home with him. We will literally live within him through the Holy Spirit. And I think we all know, of course, what that means. Through the Holy Spirit, they live within us and guide us and lead us. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So that's a very important concept. You show love to God by doing what he said. Obedience equals love. You turn back to 1 John then. Now let's go to 1 John near the end of your Bible. Chapter 3, 1 John, chapter 3, and beginning in verse 18. John, the disciple Jesus loved, near the end of his life after everything was changed that was changed, and very little was changed, by the way, as we know. But here he is, the last remaining true apostle. He says, My little children, 1 John 3, verse 18, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let's do what God says. Indeed, show we love God by doing what he says and shows us. And by this we know that we are of the truth. And by the way, brethren, what is the truth? Again, we all know, John 17, 17, thy word is truth. And my brethren, I think you all understand, I hope you understand, that we get the truth from the Bible, not just by command, but by the example of Christ and the apostles, if their example is shown to be a right example, and God was guiding them in it. And if we see something was done all the way through the Bible, God doesn't say, you've got to do it just this way, but that example ought to teach us to do it that way. That is the revelation. This is the revelation, this book, the Bible, of the mind of God. And we really need to understand that and have faith in that. So don't just love in word. Say, oh, I love God. 
But do what he says. Do it in deed and in truth. Thy word is truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Sometimes we condemn ourselves if we make a little mistake and we get too down on ourselves. And God will have mercy, obviously, if we repent. We've all had to be forgiven. I have to be every day by God, I'm sure, over and over. And you do too. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, if we don't have that attitude of guilt, we have confidence. And that's a degree of faith. We have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. We get our prayers answered. And we're walking with God. Why? Because we keep His commandments, plural, all ten of them, as they're magnified, obviously, and do. You see, there are other things besides just the letter of the law, ten commandments. Do those things that are pleasing in His sight. He shows us that we're to observe the holy days. He shows us that we're to eat just the clean meats, not the unclean meats. He shows us that we're to tithe. And Jesus said, you know, it's better to you don't neglect the greater things of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith, but don't leave the other tithing undone. Don't leave that undone. Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus is directly indicating, Christ is saying, in that way, clearly, you ought to tithe. It's a law he gave, a statute he gave. Many, many other things in the Bible are very clearly revealed by secondary teachings, that is, teachings based on the commandments or by the examples in the Bible. And we need to follow those things. So we have our prayers answered. We are blessed by God, and we will be in God's kingdom if we keep His commandments. That's the biggest two-letter word in the English language, if. (laughs) If we keep His commandments, and if we do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And so we've got to learn to do all those things as best we can through Christ in us that are pleasing in God's sight. Back in Colossians chapter 1, if you turn there to Colossians uh, here in your New Testament, Colossians 1 verse 13, just breaking into the thought, Christ or God has delivered us from the power of darkness. We've been under Satan's kingdom. Satan has a kingdom. Most of you know that. Jesus indicated that. Most of us grew up in that kingdom. We were part of that system. We were guided by that great false influence. He's transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So we're already in God's kingdom in the sense of being begotten sons of God. And we're part of what? Of God's kingdom in that sense. We're part of God's government even now. Because the government, as so many scriptures explain, I've given you 1 Corinthians 6, chapters 1 to 6, chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, many times, you know, how we're to, call, we're to judge angels and judge the things of this life and so on. God tells us over and over that we have a government. And God has a government in the church. And we're to understand that and respect that. That's 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 6. But we're in His kingdom. We're in His government now as begotten members of the government of God, in whom we have redemption in Christ through His blood. We don't leave out Christ's blood in our gospel. We have to come to the kingdom of God through His blood. The forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him, by Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, every government, every power, every high office on earth, all things were created through him and for him, Jesus Christ. 
And he, Christ, is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the living head of the church of God. He has not gone off and forgot it. That is his responsibility to guide his church over and over. He is the beginning. He is the beginning of everything. And he's the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He died, was born again by a resurrection that in all things he might have preeminence. So Christ is the head of the church. Not that he was, but he is right now today. And we've got to believe this, brethren. Please believe that for your good, not just my good, but for your own good. Have a deep and profound understanding that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We all have doubts from time to time. You may see me make a mistake and think, well, I made a mistake, so Christ can't be there. Well, I make mistakes every day. My wife could tell you about it. But God will not allow me to make some terrible mistake to wreck the whole work. If I do, he'll kick me out. Mr. Armstrong used to say that about himself. You probably heard him say, I've seen Mr. Pyle nodding, and I'm sure Mr. Pardon and many others have heard him say that many times. He said, God has never permitted me to make a mistake that would destroy the whole work. We all make some mistakes, and we learn as we go along, but God does not allow any huge mistakes, or he'll remove one who does that if they don't repent and change, and so on. And you have to have faith in that. That Christ is not a dead head, he's alive. He can remove me, he can remove Mr. Ames, he can remove Dr. O'Neill, he can remove even Wayne Piles. <laughs> Pick on big Wayne. <laughs> Anybody. <laughs> so we all have to understand that. Believe that. And have faith that Christ is alive. For your good, you need to have that. That he's in charge. Over in chapter 2, verse 15. Again, I'd like to read it all, but talking about Christ here. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he, Christ, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. See, when he was resurrected after his death on the cross. Therefore, let no one judge you. Don't let anyone pick on you or judge you in how you keep the feasts or the holy days in the way you eat or drink or what you do on the holy days. Who decides how to keep the holy days? Think about that as you read this scripture. Frankly, it's God's church. God doesn't give us exact detailed directions of every aspect. The ministry is to lead the church. And there were times when they probably had a more Jewish approach to the holy days at the very beginning of the church. You know, when they were all Jews, and we don't know that, and they kind of migrated on and gradually quit commanding circumcision at one point and, and gradually changed other aspects. I know Mr. Armstrong felt that we ought to have the Feast of Tabernacles in one place, and that was just fixed in his mind, that it had to be at Big Sandy. And on January the 4th, 1961, you say, how can you remember that? Well, I tend to remember things by mental hooks. It was my sister's birthday. She's my... <laughs> January the 4th. She was born a little before 61, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, January the 4th, 1961, my wife and I were coming back from Britain and uh, having been over there to start Ambassador College at Brick and Wood. And I talked Mrs. Armstrong and letting me sit up with Mr. Armstrong. And Mrs. Arm Mar Margie sat back with Mrs. Armstrong. And I was able to talk to him for hours and hours and explain to him what Dr. Hen I had been talking about. How in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, the obviously it's indicated if you read the book of Acts, the disciples and the Christians were observing the feasts of God. You know, you'll see that in the book of Acts. They had this Pentecost and that Pentecost and this day is of unleavened bread later on. They didn't give up the feasts at all. 
were they all keeping the Feast of Tabernacles at Jerusalem? <laughs> no. And I went through that in detail. He never, we never had time to get to him thoroughly about that. And uh, so he, he saw that. I said, they wouldn't even let them in the temple. And if a whole bunch of Gentiles came over there to observe the feast, they'd probably kill them and wipe them out. They were already mad at the church and all the rest of it. So he came to realize that, yes, Paul probably let the brethren in Ephesus have the feast there. And the brethren over in Rome, a different place, have the feast there. They weren't all able to travel. And as we are today, they didn't have airplanes and all the rest of it. So they had the feasts in various places. And so that very autumn... He let me call Les McCullough, who was working as Ted Armstrong's assistant, and Ron Kelly was up in Sacramento and pastoring Sacramento and Reno, and I asked them, uh, I wasn't yet director of the ministry, but I was working with Ted and running the work in the ministry and, and was second vice president. So I asked them to go up to Sacramento area and in mid-California, I could see that was the other place. And Mr. Armstrong agreed with that. A big feast in Big Sandy, but out west, rather than making all the churches in Washington and Oregon and California and so forth drive way back to Big Sandy, we would get to meet out there. So I gave them the, I only, I didn't have very many ideas. I suggested the, the uh, state fairgrounds in Sacramento. But they went there and found that wouldn't work and they couldn't get the right place. So they looked around and God led them to find the place up at, uh, at Squaw Valley. And so that very autumn, some of you older brethren remember, we began to have the Feast of Tabernacles in Squaw Valley, California for the first time the autumn of 1961. And I was a small part of that. That was just a small thing. It's not a huge thing. There were several of us beginning to think and pray about that. But brethren, the church has to work that out. It isn't for all the brethren. And then where did we meet? Did we put up a grass hut up at 6,000 foot level? And we would all froze to death. No, we met in a little warmer place. Not too much warmer at first. Remember the, the open, the smiling, the open part was there at the first year. We really got cold. We had one year like that up in, uh, Saratoga Springs up in New York, upper New York State. It was very beautiful. My wife and I were there. Cheryl and I were there for that feast, the first part of it. And we had this saying going around among the brethren. It was really cold, and it was the coldest feast I ever attended, frankly, even colder than Squaw Valley. And uh, we had this saying going around, many are cold, but few are frozen. And, uh, wow, was it cold. <laughs> but anyway... God helps work those things out and guides the ministry to tell us we have the church in this building and we have it at 2 o'clock. Now, we could have a committee and the committee could go around to all of you and have a vote and work, you know, but God doesn't work that way. He never has worked that way. We get advice. Certainly, we often get advice on things from the brethren. When we were to move back here from uh, California, as many of the brethren know, I talked to Mrs. Pyle. I'm sure I did none before we came. And I talked to several of the ladies in the office. I talked to a whole bunch of men beside the ministers. I didn't just say, we're just going to move back to Charlotte. God says, in multitude of counsel, we tried to get multitude of counsel. We thought about it, prayed about it. My wife and I looked in uh, several different cities, as you've heard me describe. And finally, you could just sort of sense that I can't go, t- I take 20 minutes trying to explain how the, the doors just open here in a remarkable way. And we came here, and I think God guided that. But God works through the ministry, and you have to have faith in that. You have to prove somewhere along in your life, you must prove, brethren, for your good, where Christ is working. You've got to prove that. It's not that other people are bad, but where is Christ primarily working? Do you want seconds or thirds or leftovers or whatever? You have to figure that out. 
How great a reward do you want to have? Do you want to be where Christ is primarily working and where his work is being more powerfully done and where his government is being more perfectly exercised? You know, those are big things in God's mind. Big things, not little things, because we're preparing for government. We're preparing to be kings and priests. And so you need to be sure of those things. Again, I'm not trying to make anyone upset or pick. I'm just saying those are important things for your life. As we get toward the end of this age, you need to prove those things. So God says, don't let any man judge you in food or drink regarding the festival, new moon or Sabbath, regarding the eating or drinking or what you do, which are a shadow of things to come. Certainly the holy days are a shadow of the Christ's plan. And the Sabbath is a shadow of the coming seventh day uh, seven thousand year, uh, the seventh one thousand year rest, the millennium, the millennial Sabbath, and so on. Let no man judge you, but the substance is of Christ. Why do they put the word substance in there? Because they don't really understand, or else they don't want the right word in there. The word, look it up if you haven't entered in there. Write it in your notes. The Greek word is soma, S O M A. That is the word that is used throughout the New Testament for the church, the body. That is the exact word used by the same author, Paul, in the same letter back here in in Colossians 1, verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, S-O-M-A, Soma. And so he's talking about the church. Don't let any man just some individual come along here's what i think you know we have a bunch of floaters and they come in and out of the church and they're not sure what to do and they don't attend regularly and they all have their own ideas here's what i think and here's what i think don't let that judge you don't let that guide your life you try to find where christ is actually doing his work and follow those who whom he is using to do his work and to preach his truth to the world Let the body of Christ show you how to keep the holy days. Let the body of Christ show you how to keep the Sabbath. Let the body of Christ make basic decisions about the church of God, the government of God, the direction of the work, and everything else. And recognize that even though men in the body of Christ have always been imperfect, except Christ, who is not a man, nevertheless, Christ is in charge, and he will guide it over all. He will guide it over all. He is alive. So you've got to learn to have faith in that, brethren, or you really could have a lot of problems later on, and you need to really understand that. Turn to chapter 3, Colossians 3, verse 17. Let's begin there. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, you see, every phase of your life, in your marriage, how you respond to your husband, how you love and respect and take care of your wife, Every aspect, how you deal with your neighbors, the way you do on your job, the way you do, of course, in dealing with others in the church, how you eat, how you dress, how you everything, whatever you do, do all in the name of Jesus Christ, as though you're doing it in his name and his service, you see, giving thanks to God the Father through him, that God has called you and opened your mind. Wives, submit to your own husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Again, a lot of wives want to water that down. Well, this is different. Oh, really? The only thing that's different, brethren, and you men need to understand that too, that if any of us, including me, if any of us try to tell our wives to do something against God's law, 
if I would tell Cheryl, look, we're going to rip the church off and I want you to be part of it and sign this or do that, or we're going to go out and uh, in wife swapping or we're going to do some terrible thing. She said, no, I'm not going to follow you in that. She has every right to do that. She must not follow me if it breaks God's law. You remember the principle, we must obey God rather than man. The apostles told the Jewish leadership, obey God rather than man. That doesn't give a wife the excuse, though, every time her husband tells her some little thing that does not disagree with God's law. It may not be her preference, but she overrules him. No, she should not do that. She should try to be gentle and submissive and pray that God will help him if he's wrong or too domineering get over that and learn to listen to her and help her and respect her feelings about it. And I try to do that, again, not perfectly, but I think my wife will tell even you other women that we're going to go somewhere to eat. Why, there's a certain restaurant, for instance, I'd like to eat in quite a bit, but she won't eat there. <laughs> and so we don't go there, and I want to eat there, but I don't want to make her feel bad, so I just starve. Anyway, <laughs> I'd eat somewhere else. And, uh, you know, all kinds of things about where we eat or how we decorate the house or do this or that. Why, uh, that's, uh, that's, I try to, you know, be very concerned about what she wants. I let her primarily decide how to decorate the house, all except my study. And <laughs> don't want too many feminine things in my study. And uh, stuff like that all over, because uh, she's better at that than I am. And she, uh, that's her interest and her time and, and her responsibility. And that's good. I don't need to tell her every dress to wear and everything she should do. But if there's something important, I'll try to say something. But... Even if I did overstep, she should submit to me unless I'm directly contradicting the law of God. So wives, submit to your own husbands. Don't say, well, yes, but. No, get off that. Don't get on, don't get on that well, but all the stuff all the time. That's making excuses, you see. And the same thing here about the rest of what he says here. Husbands, love your wives. Well, sometimes your wife may talk too much or pick at you or do something, but don't, don't get mad at them. Don't be bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things. Now, this isn't children in their 20s and 30s, by the way. You young people at some point have to break away from, um, from your parents and make certain decisions. We understand that. But children, that is those, let's say, 16 and under or 17 and under, whatever it is, if you're living under your parents' roof, you should do what they say. Obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children. So we should not try to push them and make them upset by going at them too hard, lest they become discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters. But again, if they tell you to steal or something, obviously you don't do that. And whatever you do, do it heartily, verse 23, as to the Lord. See, in every phase of life, you're trying to serve Christ. He is your immediate boss and not men, knowing that from the Lord, it's from the Lord Jesus Christ, your living head, you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Christ is your immediate Lord in every phase of your life. You serve the Lord Christ and everything you do should be from that point of view and doing that in faith that that's what he wants and that's what his word indicates that you should do and all of us will be better off if we do more of that brethren what if I told you it was time to flee uh, you know what would happen an awful lot well here's the way I look at it and then what about these other groups and I don't mean to be picking on them they're good people out there but God has allowed his church to be splintered and if God revealed it to one of us 
maybe my successor, put it that way, lest you think, I'm not about to say you're going to flee in the next year or two, by the way. There's several things yet to happen, so don't get excited. I'm just saying, what if the time came that all these things I'm talking about got pretty close and you couldn't quite see it was yet time to flee, and I, who had been with Mr. Armstrong way back in the early, late 40s, early 50s, had been in the ministry all these years and had never come up with something wild like that before, and I haven't, said it's time to flee. Now, some of these other groups wouldn't flee with us. You know that. Well, I don't know. Oh, Rod Meredith, he's too stripped. We're not going to go. They wouldn't be there if God told me. You say, well, I think God will just show it to everybody. Well, if you want to take that chance, you do that. I don't think that. Not just because I'm here. I never said that. My older children can all tell you. I guess Elizabeth's not here. But I said that way back when to all the older children and to my wife. I said, if that man, I said it more than once, I'm sure they'd remember it, meaning Mr. Herbert Armstrong. I said, if that man says it's time to flee, I'm going to flee. Not because I think he's perfect. I did not think that. And I do not think that now because he made a lot of mistakes. And I knew about those mistakes probably better than anyone that's still alive today. I work with him more closely over a longer period of time. And I love him. Look on him as the second father. But I saw God was using the man beside, in spite of his mistakes. He was used by God more than any man in modern times to restore the whole paradigm, the whole pattern of the way of life we ought to be living in the meaning of Christianity. I'm going to bring in that word paradigm. Some have said that's Takacha's word. We can't use that. That's Mike Fazell's word. Too bad, Mike Fazell. I'm going to use it anyway. <laughs> so you brethren out in the field, get used to it. We're going to look it up. The word paradigm means a model. It means an understanding of the whole pattern, the way things ought to be done in a certain situation. And it's a good word. It describes that whole concept. So we're going to start using that once in a while. That's a word in the dictionary. It's not Mike Fazell's dictionary. <laughs> it's it's uh, Webster's dictionary. <laughs> and in the, in the Oxford dictionary and the others over in Britain as well. But anyway, I, God used that man. And I, know, I knew he was a businessman. You know, in the sense he was thoughtful. He didn't jump here and there with emotion. When I was being converted, Mr. Armstrong never started telling me a bunch of what I would call bear stories. Well, God just showed me this, and God showed me that, and God gave me this vision. He or Mrs. Armstrong, neither one told me things like that or any other student that I know of. Later on, gradually, I came to hear a few things, very few, because there were very few times when God did intervene, like you heard the one time Mrs. Armstrong and they were virtually starving and having hard times up in Eugene, Oregon, and their little, their oldest child, Beverly, uh, 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 who is now dead, but uh, she was about 12 years older than me, and she was a little girl lying on the daybed, and uh, there, and their very modest home, and Mrs. Armstrong, in the middle of the afternoon, after her housework, was taking a nap nearby, and she heard this voice in her mind, kind of moved Beverly, and she kind of shook herself and and uh, thought, well, I'm just hearing, or just imagining. And then she lay back down, and then the voice came a little louder, Move Beverly! And again, she kind of thought, and she, because she was not, again, odd and looking for some sign all the time. That was not the kind of woman she was. I knew her well, real well, too. Spent thousands of hours with each one of them. Finally, the third time, the voice came so loud, she said, it virtually shook the room. She never experienced that in her life before or since. Move Beverly! Just like that, just shook her. 
And she, wow, she thought this must be God telling me. And she went over and picked up Beverly. And the next second, this great big old-fashioned picture frame came crashing down right where Beverly was lying. Now, you say, why didn't God keep the picture frame from crashing down in the first place? He could have done that. I think he was trying to encourage them. They were not having enough to eat. They were having hard times. And God knew this was a natural thing. Apparently, it was going to occur. I don't think God necessarily made it occur, but he thought this is about to happen. This will encourage Mrs. Armstrong and Mr. Armstrong if I give them that special encouragement at this time. So I've heard about, you know, two or three other things like that in all their 54, 55 years in the ministry where something like that happened. You talk to some people from some religions, oh, God spoke to us and God gave me this vision. I saw it. They just go on to that stuff. It's a bunch of baloney. And they don't keep God's commandments and they're not doing God's work or anything else. Most of you could figure that out. But I saw Mr. Armstrong was a man of God, was not lying, was not led by some quick decision on major things or emotion. If God showed him it was time to flee, I wasn't going to go to the Seventh-day Church of God ministers and say, what do you think? I wasn't going to go over, if it happened later, to Garner Ted or say, what do you think in his church? Or go over with some other guy that split off and started some other church and say, what do you think? I knew that Mr. Armstrong was using, or God was using Mr. Armstrong. He was God's primary servant. He was the one God was using. And I was going to leave. And I said, I don't care if we're embarrassed and had to come back. I would ten times rather be embarrassed and have to come back than not to go in the first place and be herded into a concentration camp and see my wife tortured and my children and all the rest of it. Think about it. Somewhere on this earth is the true church of God. Somewhere on this earth that the church is going to preach the full truth of God. Not perfectly, but more than any other church. Somewhere the work is going to be done more fully. You need to figure that out. In spite of personalities, in spite of your well buts, or here's the way I look at it, type of attitude. Because we're getting toward the time of the end. And we do need to get certain things straight for our own good, brethren. At some point, we all need to prove these basic things and have faith and what Christ is doing, and where Christ is working. In Ephesians chapter 1, if you would turn there at this point, Ephesians now, brethren, uh, chapter 1, and I want to begin reading in verse 19. And he describes the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. That great mighty being, Jesus Christ, who sits alive, our living head, who's the head of this church, alive, active at God's right hand, he put all things under his, Christ's feet, and gave him to be the head over all things. Christ is the head over our summer program. He's the head over church administration. He's the head over every aspect of this work. Does Dr. Winnell ever make a mistake? Yes, he probably does. But Christ's going to guide it over all. If I can't figure it out with the help of our other men and try to get Dr. Winnell, and he will try to respond to it, I know, and has done, and not get his feelings hurt, then Christ will intervene and straighten it out in due time. I know that, and I know He knows that too. 
And if Christ needs to, he'll straighten me out through the other men and the council or through circumstances or through sickness or a great vision where he shakes the bed I'm sleeping in at night. You know, he can do it in any number of ways. Christ is not limited and he is not dead. He is alive. God put him over all things to the church, which is his body, Soma. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So we need to really understand that, that Christ is overall guiding all these decisions. I've told you about various trials and tests I've been through, sent away here or there, which didn't seem to be ideal at the time, or got fired from a job, and I trained several of the men who worked for me. I better not name them all, but four or five of them. And I even kidded about that later. I keep training my bosses, you know. <laughs> in fact, Ted Armstrong was in my freshman class for a few weeks at the end of the year. And then uh, he just gave it to me, Mr. Armstrong, at the end of the year. And then the whole epistles of Paul and, and uh, second year Bible class. But he, he became my boss and several others as well without naming them. And that's fine. God did that. The elevator goes up and the elevator goes down. You trust in Christ. And Christ works it out in the end. That's what we have to come to understand and not get our feelings hurt about it. Back in Matthew 28, turn to Matthew 28 and beginning in verse 18. Then Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now again, brethren, Christ told the brethren, I am the light of the world. And so in many statements like that, he did teach them to follow his example, if you follow me without me giving all the scriptures. They were to follow his example, not just his direct commands. And so we're to follow his example, and we're to follow the examples of Peter, and James and John and the Apostle Paul, as we see, they're indicated to be good examples in the Bible. Follow the good examples of Moses and so forth. Follow the good examples of God's church. So Christ said to go out and follow that. Do that. Don't do something out. And that is living by faith. If we do what he says and teaching, you know, the laws of God and teaching about the kingdom of God and teaching about prophecy and expounding Matthew 24, Mark 13, to Luke 21. And of course, he talked about the Old Testament being the word of God. That's the only word of God there was when he said to live by every word of God and so on. So we're to do that. And so we're to do all these things. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, brethren, a couple of key things here. I better not take time to read all these longer passages I'd like to because I used to teach epistles but he said in verse 1 imitate me Paul writes imitate me just as I imitate Christ so we're to follow Paul's example now when Paul was for instance raising up churches if you read the book of Titus I'll just refer to it write it in your notes chapter 1 he didn't say brethren let's have a vote on who the ministers are to be he instructed Titus to appoint elders in every city. He said, you appoint, no voting, no politicking, you appoint elders in every city. Christ was the God of the Old Testament. We all know that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. That rock was Christ. He was the God of the Old Testament. What did Christ instruct uh, Moses to do and his servants back then? In chapter 18 of Exodus, he told them to appoint no voting, no politicking. Let's have this committee decide this. And no, he appointed them. That was always God's government. 
I will give you $1,000 out of my own pocket, not the work, personally. If any of you or any of you brethren out there who hear me can show me one scripture in the Bible where they ever had politicking or voting in the sense of choosing a leader or making some major decision in the work or that sort of thing. I know one other church tried to come up with the selection of Matthias to replace Judas as their excuse. Some of you remember that when they were starting out, they had to come up with some excuse. didn't say that. It just says they cast lots and then they thank God there in Acts chapter 1. You, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you have chosen this man to take the place. It was an appeal to God. It was not voting. It was not voting. Again, they've used the excuse in Acts chapter 6 about the selection of deacons, saying, well, they were voting. No, they were not voting. The apostles took the lead, and the apostles who were in charge, no doubt Peter was the spokesman nearly every time when it says who was doing the speak. He was speak. It was Peter. He wasn't a dictator, but he was certainly the main spokesman, and that was the pattern. And Paul was the main spokesman over the Gentiles, and that was the pattern. He said, you choose forth, set forth men with these qualifications whom we may appoint over this responsibility. Some of us here in the office may decide, well, we will say, well, to you, brethren, we'll ask three or four or ten other people, what do you think about this or that job and who can best do that? Or in the ministry, you know, I sometimes ask others, who do you think would best do this and that? When I had to appoint someone uh, to be in the job uh, Dr. Winnale is in, for instance, I don't think this will embarrass him, but I asked probably eight to twelve different people about it and got their opinions. What do you think? Would be, who do you think would be the best man to fit that? And he was one of the top two on everyone's list. And the top one, I think, slightly more than the others, and certainly I felt was better for the particular responsibility. And the other man actually felt it was better he didn't. He didn't say I wouldn't do it, but at any rate, uh, Dr. Renale fit. It was a multitude of counsel, but it was not voting. It was getting their opinion. It was getting multitude of counsel. That's what God does tell us to do, and that's what we try to do. So this is the pattern. Follow Christ and follow Christ's government and not come up with their own ideas of government, which is contrary to the practice of the Bible, the example of the Bible, and is a major, major thing, not a little thing, a major thing in the mind of Jesus Christ. I'm just telling you that. Now, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as I deliver them to you. What was the tradition in God's church for 52 years? under Mr. Herbert Armstrong, whom God used more than any man in modern times. The tradition was not voting, not committees, not politicking, but multitude of counsel, and then he would make the decision. It was not voting, and so on. That was the tradition, and that's what we're following today, because that's the pattern of the Bible. That is the right tradition. That is the right teaching. That's the right example all the way through the Bible, and it's important you understand that. Uh, so, anyway, Paul certainly goes into that kind of thing uh, in a number of places here. But one thing I want to, without reading this whole uh, chapter, go turn to verse 18. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. he says, First of all, when you come together as a church, he gets on into the Passover and how they were taking the Passover wrongly. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be factions among you. God has allowed factions today in His church. He has not caused them. He has allowed them. But there must be factions among you 
that those who are approved may be recognized among you or manifest. And certainly the fruits of following the way of God more closely are the major fruit and also who is doing more of the genuine work of God. Those things are pretty clear to those who want to understand. Over in chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says in verse 32, The spirits of the prophets, that is these spiritual gifts of prophesying or speaking in tongues, are subject to the prophets. If some of you have attended these Pentecostal meetings, as I did when I was a younger man, they'll, get, they'll just break in and contradict each other or ride right over each other, interrupt each other, I should say, and babble, babble, babble. They're not really speaking in a foreign language, but just a babble anyway. But they're subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace in all churches of the saints. God is not the author of confusion. He has allowed factions because God tells us there must be factions to show to him and as he and Christ are testing us. And they are testing me. And they are testing you. Will John or Jim or Jack or Rod Meredith or Doug Winnell or Dick Ames or any of us, will these people walk as closely to me without making excuses, without trying to water things down, without saying yes, well, but... Well, these people walk as closely to me as they possibly can. And he's testing us on that, brethren, the rest of our lives. We may love others in the church who don't do that. And I know that. I love them. They're weak. There are other people in these other church groups who are nice people. But they may not do that in many things they're doing. Do I hate them and wish them all to go to hell? No. Do I think many of them are going to be literally shaken to the core of their being when these things start happening big time and come with us? Yes. I think probably hundreds will come with us before the end, maybe thousands, and be able to go to a place of safety and be in the first resurrection and all that kind of thing. But that's up to God and up to them and how they respond to these things. That doesn't mean they're evil or something horrible. It's just that each of us has to be close to Christ and to do the very best we can and not to make excuses. So we're to follow the traditions of God's church. True government. True government, the right form of church government, the right approach to it and the way of carrying it out, and true unity is a vital thing, a major tradition of the church of God. When Mr. Armstrong listed the 18 truths that he had been used by Christ in putting back in the church, that was number one, the government of God. Most of you remember that, you older brethren. So God has allowed this confusion to test us, but that doesn't mean it's all right just because he hasn't brought down fire from heaven on people who go the wrong way in some of these things. As we approach the end, we'd better make right well sure where Christ is working and have faith in the leadership that's doing the work and preaching the truth so long as they continue to do that. They may have a big mole on their nose, (laughs) you know what I mean? They may not be handsome or they make other human mistakes or whatever. That's beside the point. The point is, are they really preaching the truth, doing the work, and practicing the right form of God's government, and more so helping people in that church prepare to be kings and priests by teaching the government of God, by teaching that whole approach so they can be better prepared. You see, that's very important. They're taught a wrong form of government for 10 years or 20 years. How's that going to prepare them to be kings and priests in the right form of government? So we need to really do that and have faith in Christ. It's not just faith in men, 
when you see the fruits where Christ is working, and then it's faith in Christ and faith in his leadership. So again, when the time comes to flee, do you really think Christ's true people will be all divided up? Or will those who are faithful know what to do? And will Christ just sort of generally reveal it to everybody? Or is he going to show it as he always has in human history through a leader? And they will tell you when to flee and what to do. I would rather put my faith in the first, that option, or the second option, I guess, as I said, that he would do it through a leader because that's what I did do when Mr. Armstrong was alive. And that's what he always indicates in the Bible. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you turn back there, brethren, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and beginning in verse 15 here, Christ inspired Paul to write, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Again, the tradition of right leadership, right government, is a very important tradition. It's part of God's word. We're to live by every word of God. We're to follow the examples in the Bible and also the teachings. And certainly a very important thing is the right approach to government, which is a tradition in that sense. Over in chapter 3 then, 1 Thessalonians 3, or 2 Thessalonians, I mean, 2 Thessalonians, I hope I said the first time, 2 Thessalonians 3 now, uh, as I meant 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, verse uh, 15, the first time. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from the unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have the faith. Some were getting ready to beat up on Paul, and it already threatened him there, and so on. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you. And brethren, we've got to learn to be established, and not blown about by every wind of doctrine. Well, I think Mr. Ames said something on the broadcast that was wrong, or Mr. Meredith got too strong in a sermon, or Dr. Rennell assigned this minister to the wrong place, or Dr. Rennell moved my minister, and boy, he's bad because I wanted my minister to stay here, and Dr. Rennell removed him, and therefore I'm leaving. What does that indicate to, to you, if you understand it, since it's not happening to you right now? It indicates that someone is not having faith that Dr. Rennell really is God's minister, and that he is being guided by Christ and his responsibilities, and that I'm letting down on my responsibility, and Mr. Ames is our vice president, and others advising Dr. Winnell, and most important of all, that Christ is not able to guide Dr. Winnell as he does, and he's not the head of the church. You see what I mean? You are indirectly judging God and judging Christ when you do that. If it is a serious mistake, and you think so, you can always write a respectful letter, Say, I may be wrong. You should have that attitude. I may be wrong, but please consider these facts. I don't ever get mad at a man doing that. But if you say, here's what I think, and I'm out of here because Dr. Renee removed my faithful minister. Why didn't he tell us then? Well, you'll find out 10 years later the man was an adulterer, or maybe he was stealing a little bit of second tithe, or he was doing this or that, which we had back in Worldwide, by the way, a number of times. And I had to move people because I was over the ministry longer than anyone else. Did I tell everybody while I was removing every minister? No, I didn't do that. That's not their business. If you were the minister and I had to remove you because you were having some problem like that or you had drunk too much a whole bunch of times and got drunk and acted up at a dance or, or whatever you did, you know what I mean, or committed adultery and I had to spread it through the whole church while well, removing John because he did this or that. That's not God's way. Love covers... Maybe the man would repent and come back later. You see, maybe we had to remove him from the church. 
But you don't want to blot that out. That's not everybody's business. So again, every time something happens, don't think you have to know all the reasons why. You don't have to know all the reasons why. Christ knows all the reasons why. He really does, and he's alive. He knows we have reasons. A leading minister somewhere on the earth, I'll leave it that way, better not say more, but had this terrible disease for a number of years and died. And I used to wonder, well, why? And then uh, one of our evangelists, a dear friend of mine, mentioned that the man had a whole string of adulteries, and I didn't realize that. And uh, in this particular case, it was not not anyone at headquarters, but someone else. And, and I didn't know that at first. I thought, well, the man has done well, and, and how come God let him get this terrible disease? And then he died. Well, that doesn't mean everybody who, who has adultery is going to die. It just means that somehow God let this man die prematurely. Apparently, he didn't repent or God allowed it to teach him a lesson. Maybe he repented in the meantime. I'm not a judge. I don't know that. I'm just saying sometimes you find out later there are reasons why things happen and you don't always know at the time and you don't need to know at the time. So anyway, please understand that. But Christ knows and he's going to deal with it. And we have to really understand that. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 now and verse 1, 2 Thessalonians 3, and I'm already starting to read there. He will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Be patient. Wait on Christ. He will straighten it out. I've seen some people who were kind of uh, dictators out in Pasadena. People used to come to Pasadena. Some of you brethren who may have come to work here or your newer brethren come to attend church here and then you'll find out there's human nature in Charlotte. Oh, yes, there is. (laughs) And out in Pasadena, people used to come out there, literally thousands of them. We finally had 3,000 people meeting on average, I think it was, at the headquarters church. Because they would meet in, in the area. I mean, they would, what we had about 1,200 and 1,400 sometimes counting the mother's room in, in the auditorium. And then we'd have people in the after, in the morning service. And then we had them over the Imperial Gym morning and afternoon, plus the Spanish church in the recital hall. And an average, some, about average, I think about 3,000 people. Well, out of 3,000 people, you're going to get some rotten apples occasionally. And we had two or three, uh, uh, people that were, uh, you know, minor department heads and they would browbeat those under them and give them the business and make them just feel like nothing and just beat them down. And I couldn't always straighten it out. I'd go to Mr. Armstrong and he'd refer to me as someone else or he'd go off on a trip and it wasn't my directly job, but I would be concerned if I found out about it. Some others would drink too much or have a woman or do this or that and so on. And the people would find out that they wow, we came out to Pasadena. It was the holy city on the hill, like a, the city of God coming down from heaven. You know, they get out there and work and they're, wow, we got human nature in Pasadena. Yes, you better believe there was human nature in Pasadena. And frankly, they had much more of it than we do here. And that's not because we're so goody good and bragging. One reason is because we've been in the work a lot longer, most of us, and we've been tried and tested. You see what I mean? And God has kind of weeded out more of the bad guys who weren't willing to come. And another reason may be 
that we're older. <laughs> you know, Mr. Party and I are not very good woman chasers anymore because the women will outrun us. <laughs> we can't keep up. <laughs> so the women will outrun us. We can't run after them very well. And then you know what I mean. I'm kidding, but you see what I mean. It helps you to be good as you get older. Your get up and goes partly got up and went. And then hopefully God's Spirit is with us more through the time as we've grown in grace and in knowledge. And I think that's part of it too, and I'm sure you do understand that. But we do still have human nature. We still make human mistakes, and we always will in this life until we're made spirit. Anyhow, uh, so we, we've got to have that attitude of being patient, waiting on Christ to take care of these things, even though we see human nature. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, you know, causing division. Here's the way I look at it and going around whispering and try to get people to turn away from God and from the direction of the church and not according to the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know that how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked and labored day and night that we might not be burdened to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, what would the authority actually be? Well, he had authority to take tithes based on the tithing law, but apparently he didn't do that with every church, More to make our, but to make ourselves an example of how you ought to follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, that if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And that's a basic command, man, we should work. For we hear that there are some who walk disorderly, uh, not working, but are busybodies. And brethren... We have in our church today, and talking to you brethren around the world, you know the number of churches out there. I don't think we have as many here, but we probably have some here, so I'm not trying to mainly land on you people here. But we have people out there that are floaters. And they float over to this church and over to that church. And then even when I came to visit out in one church a while back, why, some other guy came who directly was put out of the church by Mr. Herbert Armstrong, start, started a work within a work while Herbert Armstrong was yet alive. And uh, when I first started Global, this man called me and said, Oh, oh, Rod, he says, and he shouldn't have called me that. So he was my student, but just disrespectful, but I didn't mind that. He said, I'm glad you kind of figured out Herbert and his work. I'm glad you got away from Herbert. He just started right down, just strongly putting down Mr. Armstrong. And I started to yell at him over the phone and say, you shut up, George. His name was not George. But I thought, no, let's listen to this guy. Let's see what he thinks. And sure enough, he kept putting down Mr. Armstrong. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, and listened to him. And then when he got near the end of his stuff, then he said, oh, by the way, he says, I hear you're starting a work and maybe we could work together. Why don't we have lunch? I said, oh, well, I'm kind of busy, George, and I may get back to you. We'll see. And I hung up. I was so busy, I never got back to that man. <laughs> never tend to either. Yet people go down the road to hear him away from God's church because he comes down and he expounds a new meaning of a Greek word or some little technical point about something. Is God using him to do the work of God? No. Does he have a big television program, a radio program reaching the world? No. What's he doing? Like a wolf. He's picking off others from this church, like others who've left more recently. Do they have the big work? No. They're just like a wolf, like the Amalekites, following around, and they find the stragglers behind Israel a little bit weak, and they pick them off like a wolf. That's not God's way, brethren. And please understand that, brethren out there. That is not God's way. A true minister of God will not do that. Paul said, I will not build on another man's foundation, going around picking off someone else from their viable work at that time. 
So floaters, back and forth, can't make up their mind where to go and can't decide where Christ is working. They have confused loyalties and they're unstable. Can Christ use them ever for a big responsibility in his coming government? No, he cannot and he will not unless they repent and wake up and get over that. They can always get wake up, but until they wake up, he can't put a man like that as a king over Alpha Centauri here or some planet way out in space later. They've been afloat. They've been back and forth, unstable, always playing little games, saying, well, I found some mistake or here's some little technical point that I found in a sermon I disagreed with. Always looking for a loose brick. Is that God's mind? No. A really converted Christian will see the big picture. And if I say up when I mean down or make some little technical mistake, they won't be worrying about it. I think I told you one time I preached a very strong sermon during the days of unleavened bread in New York against sin. It was during the days of unleavened bread, and I was really strong. And I said, brethren, we've got to stop obeying God. And they all laughed, you know, and I asked later, I said, why? Why were they laughing? They said, they told, oh, my. They said, we knew what you meant. You meant stop disobeying God. But I was on a roll, you know. I was, I was talking fast. And they understood that, but they thought it was funny. <laughs> and I do, too, looking back on it, because sometimes they get on a roll and say something. And, and luckily, in the television program, they'll just edit that out or something if I say something like that. <clears throat> anyway, but we had better learn to be stable and to show God that we're going to do what he said regardless and not water things down. These type of people always second guess. They're trying to second guess the decisions of Christ's ministries, ministers. And of course, they'll often say, well, this situation is different. Oh, really? Why is the situation always different where they can't tithe or they can't obey God or they can't keep the Sabbath? The situation is different, huh? Mr. Armstrong wrote an article years ago. Some of you know that. I wish we could republish that. I don't know if he, Mr. Helge would find out if we, just an individual article. The man who could not afford to tithe. And he showed this man that he said he could not afford to tithe. And finally, when he did learn to tithe, and one year his whole thing, crop was wiped out. And the next year, all the other neighbors' crops, crops were wiped out, I think it was, if I remember the story. And his was the only crop that was spared because he was now obeying God. God is in charge. His ways work. And it's going to work out best, no matter. But don't say, this is different, and I can't afford to do this. Or I can't afford to keep the Sabbath. My situation, no, you can afford to keep the Sabbath. You better believe you can. And on the short run, you might have some troubles. In the short run, some people have had to give up jobs. But in the end, God will often give them a better job or a job just as good. He will take care of them in the end. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And again, we have to have faith in him to do that. And he will do it. So don't think it's different and make excuses for watering down uh, the way of God. Again, let's go back and realize the basic importance of what I read you at the very beginning of the sermon Romans chapter 14 do you have faith verse 22 happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he allows but he who doubts is condemned or damned if he eats because he does not eat from faith but whatever is not from faith is sin and if you begin to water things down 
And if you begin to go against the very church you know is doing God's work and say, well, yes, but, or this man titillates my mind over here and I know Christ is working over here, but I want to go back and forth and back and forth and play funny games. Think about it. Is that showing faith in God? Is that showing honor to God? Is that really preparing yourself to be part of his team, which he is now preparing to rule the world as, as a king and a priest in the future? I think you all know the answer. In Ephesians chapter 1, again, Ephesians chapter 1 and beginning in verse 22. He, God, put all things under his Christ's feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Christ is the head over all things, brethren, not some things. Christ is alive. And we've got to learn to walk and live by faith because faith is the whole way of God. And, of course, he who does not walk by faith is is in sin in that sense. And uh, faithlessness equals sin, as, as, I, as I just read you in this, uh, this other passage. So let's turn to Hebrews now, chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, verse 35. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence... Paul writes to the early church there, the Hebrews, in and around Jerusalem, who should have known better. Some of them were making mistakes as well, which has great reward. For you need have endurance. Don't give up and quit. Don't turn aside. Don't try to water things down. So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come. And brethren, he is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. And I think it will come within the next 7 to 11 years, probably. The, the tribulation, I should say, not the Christ's coming. But these things are speeding up. But that's just what I think. We don't, can't count on that. But he's coming in this lifetime, the most of you. Christ is coming soon and will not tarry. Now, the just shall live by faith. Learn to live by faith. Not because of me. Not because of any of our other human leaders that you think may or may not be perfect. But because Jesus Christ is perfect. He is alive. He is in charge over all. He is doing his work through a church on this earth today. And we're in the end of an age where we've got to show God where our faith is, where our loyalty is, and not be always unstable souls, blown about by every wind of doctrine. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So I exhort all of you, please, for your sake, learn to believe, not in humans in that sense, but in Christ and what he's doing and in his church and have faith in his leadership and what he's doing and how he's leading now and forever because you will soon be in his very family, in his kingdom, if you do that and learn to do it sincerely from the heart in the right way.